another victim to my preaching. <clears throat> if you have your Bibles this morning, I'd like you to turn to the book of 2 Samuel. Oh, kids can be dismissed. I'm sorry. You know, don't wait for me. I don't know what I'm doing. You know the game. When, the, when it's time to preach, the kids go to Sunday school. I'm sorry. I am, you know, I was caught up in the song. I, ooh, that was good. Last week, as we began to say, we talked about the book of 2 Samuel. And uh, I showed you yet another way to study the Bible. And uh, I want you to understand that there is no exact way to study the Word of God. The Word of God has so many dimensions to it that if you study it just one way, you're going you're gonna to miss a lot of things. You've got to take the time to really see the different avenues of the Bible, and in the rest of your life you'll, you'll switch back and forth or maybe do multiples at the same time. And part of the, the things that I want to accomplish as we come through our study in the Word of God is to help you understand, you know, the different ways and give you an examples of it, which we have been doing as we come through here. But last week I showed you a new way. I showed you and we talked about character studies. And I told you how that when you come to a point in your life that you really commit yourself to God, that I mean the things of God are number one in your life. I mean, you don't have to pick and choose between what you're going to do for God and what you're going to do for yourself. God is at the top of your list. And whatever God's, that's where it is. When you get to that point in your life, character studies will actually change your whole perspective of the Bible. We talked about it last week through the life of David, and I showed you how that, what character studies do is it really shows you why people focus on the sins of others instead of focusing on their own sins. Because it's one of those aspects of the Word of God where uh, we ought to see everything and everybody through our own frailties and our own weaknesses. It keeps you from becoming self-righteous. It keeps you from becoming to the point where, uh, you know, you uh, uh, can see every fault in everybody else, but you can't see your own faults. And that's a tremendous way to study the Word of God is through the characters in the Bible. David, a man after God's own heart, one of the greatest character studies you'll find uh, in all of the Bible. And I showed you how that First Samuel is one of the books that are devoted to him. And we're going to look at another one here uh, next week, or not next week, but the week after, uh, First Chronicles, that is also devoted to him. And I'll show you some interesting parallels uh, of how God writes two different books about the same guy, putting two different emphasis on something. It's quite incredible. But today, we're going to come, we've come to the book of 1 Kings. And as you know, we are coming through the whole Bible. I want, to, I want to give you the ability to be able to understand how the Bible goes together. And uh, there are so many young Christians here that have, are getting plugged into the Word of God, that are getting serious about the Word of God, <clears throat> that I don't know of anything better for you than to give you a whole concept of how the Word of God uh, lays itself out. And today we're going to study the book of 1 Kings. Now the, first book, uh, the book of 1 Kings deals with a number of things, but the storyline, it starts out with the death of David. And uh, you're going to see then Solomon come to the throne in the first couple of chapters, and then uh, the book ends 
uh, with a man by the name of Jehoshaphat. And uh, as you look at that, and I told you when we started 1 Samuel that the four books of the kings, 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, 1 Kings and 2 Kings, they really cover a period of time dealing with a nation of Israel that runs about 500 to 600 years, depending on how you count it. But it really is the central part of the Old Testament as far as the nation of Israel is concerned. And I showed you how that those four books trace the history of the nation of Israel and the start of a monarchy under the kings, which are absolutely crucial, absolutely crucial for you understanding what God is doing within the Word of God. Now, in the book of 1 Samuel, we saw how that it, it transitioned from the judges to the king. We saw Samuel, Saul, David. And we saw the establishment of the monarchy uh, under the nation of Israel and the kings. In 2 Samuel, we saw the life and the trials of David. In 1 Kings, we're going to see the rise of Solomon. We're going to see the start also. We're going to, be a, we're going to see a pivotal point, And we're going to see the beginning of the decline of the nation of Israel. And then 2 Kings... Uh, which we're going to cover next week, we're going to see the utter collapse of Israel, why the final destruction and all the things that take place. And uh, that is a pivotal book in your Bible. And we'll talk about all of that when we get into it next week. Now, I gave you, on every book of the Bible so far, I've given you a breakdown. Now, that's where you start. If you would look at my Bible, you would find that at the beginning of every book, I have the same breakdown I give you. The way I approach the Bible and the way I teach the Bible is, is I start with something broad. I start with something like the breakdown of the whole book. And then I'll break it down in a smaller segment and then a smaller segment till we come right down where we get everything that is in that book. That's the way you've really got to approach the Bible. Most young men and most young ladies start wrong with the Bible. They start with the small things and then try to figure out the big things. When you've got to start with the big things and work down to the small things. And that's why it's so important to, uh, to get the breakdowns of the Bible. And most of them are very easy. Now, you take, uh, you take uh, uh, Second Samuel, or, or, or first, excuse me, First Kings here. It's real easy. It's real easy. Chapter 1 through chapter 11 start with the rise of Solomon and the, uh, Israel's uh, greatest time period. In chapter 12 through chapter 22, we see the downfall of Israel. The book breaks cleanly at chapter 11 and chapter 12 with the information on both sides. And the moment you think about that book, that's the first thing you want to think about. You want to think about the context of it. You want to think how that book lays itself out and splits itself. Uh, and it's real easy. The breakdown of the books of the Bible are really, are really pretty easy to get together. Now, we begin to see that... Uh, uh, Solomon, without a doubt, we're going to study his life in detail this morning as best we can with the time we have. You're going to find that Solomon is the most unique man in all of the Bible. I don't know of another character that is more unique and bears more study and bears more information from the study than, than the life of Solomon. Where David may give you the understanding of yourself in a greater way, Solomon will give you a picture of what God is doing and what God's plan is in a greater way. And that's what I mean about different ways to study the Bible. One character study will show you about yourself. The other character study will show you about what God's doing. And yet at the same time, show you about yourself. There's so many different aspects of the Word of God. Many times when I, when I put these together on Monday morning, uh, it takes me about a half a day just to sift through everything because there's so much information. And I've got to try to put it in a cohesive form that goes within our time format <coughs> And, and, and make it make sense. 
and so you can understand it, but yet give you a format that you can take it home and, <clears throat> and apply it to your own life uh, in, in, in the Word of God. And sometimes that's not, that's not the easiest thing to do, especially when you have a guy like Solomon we've got to look at. But Solomon is the most unique man in the Bible. He's unique in two perspectives. I've told you from the day one when we started studying the Bible, and I've said this privately to many of you, and I've said it publicly many times, that there's types of the Antichrist in the Bible, and there's types of Christ in the Bible. In fact, there's 18 types of the Antichrist in the Old Testament that picture and foreshadow the coming man of sin. There's 21 types of men in the Bible who picture and foreshadow the Lord Jesus Christ. And that in itself is a great study uh, to take on your own. But within those, two, within those two lists, there's one man that is the most unique man from the aspect that he's both types. There's only one man in the Bible that is both types. Not only is he a type of Christ, but he's also a type of the Antichrist, and that's Solomon. And we're going to see that today, and you're going to see why. It's one of the greatest lessons you'll never learn. But it, you need to understand it this morning, and I'll talk to you about it when we get to that point. But he's unique for many different ways. Now, I don't know if you know his, about his life or not, but Solomon starts like this. He st his reign is 40 years. And he really is on the throne at 1000 B.C. from a historical perspective. And it is the highest point, it is the apex of Israel's national history as a nation. There's never a time when Israel is greater than when Solomon is on the throne as a type of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's incredible. There's five wisdom books in the Bible, five of them. And those five wisdom books, as far as I'm concerned, contain everything that you ever get as far as God is concerned. And then the rest of the Bible is just filler stuff that goes along with what it says. But Solomon writes three of them. Uh, the book of Psalms, which David writes, shows you the heart of God. The book of Job shows you the sufferings of God. But the three books that Solomon writes are unique. Because the Bible says that God <coughs> is a Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. <coughs> the Bible says that we have a trinity in our God. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Uniquely enough, the books that Solomon writes, because he is the greatest type of Christ on the throne in the millennium, at this time in Israel's highest point, the three books that he writes lines up to the three aspects of that trinity. When you study the book of Proverbs, there's no doubt about it when you get into Proverbs. In the book of Proverbs, you're dealing with the mind of God. No question about it. When you get into the book of Ecclesiastes, there's no question about it. You're dealing with the mind of the Spirit. And when you get into the book of Song of Solomon, there's no question about it. In that book, you're dealing with the mind of Christ. And you have in Solomon's books, the wisdom books that he writes, you have a complete layout of three books that tell you exactly how God thinks. You remember how I've told you many, many times that the job of every child of God uh, is to uh, find out what God believes, what his viewpoint is on everything in life, and then make that viewpoint your viewpoint? That's the book of Proverbs. The book of Proverbs gives you more instructions on what God thinks about everything in life. You want to find where the Spirit of God is going? How many times I've told you the Spirit of God moves from east to west? I'm telling you, the book of Ecclesiastes shows you that. You talk about the circuits of the wind, and, it, and then before it gets into anything, it shows you the Spirit of God moving across this planet, and it shows you the mindset of man trying to come up with theologies or the man-made devices, and the Bible says there's many devices in the heart of man, yet the counsel of the Lord, that shall stand. It shows you man's devices, and it shows you that the Spirit of God is predominant no matter what man tries to do. 
And then the little book of Song of Solomon. Wow, what a book. That book shows you as a child of God how God looks at you as his son. And it also tells you as a child of God how you should look at God. It gives you every aspect of what you should feel and what you should believe and what you should hang on to. And it tells you exactly how God looks at you. There's a great danger today in Christianity because of the lackadaisical attitude of preachers, the lackadaisical listening skills of God's people, and the inavailability of the Word of God to really get truth down the way that it needs to be gotten down. And yet, that's why so many a child of God has, is so confused about their relationship with God. They don't know how God looks at them. That's why they believe they can lose their salvation. Or that's why they believe that they can get uh, uh, all kinds of things that have nothing to do with the Bible. Those three books, if you'll ever get them down, <coughs> get them down. If you ever just get a handle on them, you'll never get them down. <coughs> I'm telling you what, I, every time I read those books, I think somebody at night while I'm sleeping goes in and changes what it said because I didn't see that yesterday when I read it before. And that's the way the Bible is. But those three books will give you the basis of the mind of God, the mind of the Holy Spirit, and the mind of Christ. And it will show you what you need to know. Now, that all comes from Solomon. And Solomon reigned for 40 years. And in chapter 1 and chapter 2, as we begin to come through now, in chapter 1 and chapter 2, here's what you got. In chapter 1 and chapter 2, you've got the death of David. And Solomon is made king. Now let me talk to you about that for a moment. And in, 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 doctrinally speaking, in 2 Samuel, we talked about David last week. You know what David represents? David represents the aspect of the Lord Jesus Christ at the second coming of Christ. What David does is destroy the last of Israel's enemies. What David does in 2 Samuel is wipe out the, the remnants of the giants. What David does in 2 Samuel deals with the killing the last of the enemies of Israel and subduing them. And then when you come to the book of, of 1 Kings, we see Christ typified by Solomon on, a, on the throne in a period of time where there are no wars. David reigns 40 years. He defeats the last enemies of Israel. Solomon reigns for 40 years. There's no battles at all during that time. The land is at rest. There are no enemies to vanquish. David did that. He's a type of Christ at the second coming. Solomon is a type of Christ at the millennium. And during the millennial reign of Christ, you know that thousand-year period, there'll be no wars. Christ sits on the throne. He reigns righteously in every aspect of this world. And the Bible says that all things are put under his feet. So when we begin to study David and Solomon in that aspect, and we begin to look at Solomon in particular, we see in chapter 1 and chapter 2 Solomon being made king. Let me give you a little sidelight. Let me give you a little tidbit about the Bible, how the Bible, and I, every time I see something like this, it's just, you know, just one more amazing thing about the Bible. But if you look in chapter 1, you don't have to turn to it, just listen to me this morning because we've got a lot of information here. We are going to look at something, read it here in a minute, but just stay with me right now. In chapter 1, verse 33, you're going to find out that uh, he talks about the fact that Solomon goes to be anointed king. And this is one of these little things that you find in the Bible that just makes the Bible connect. When he goes in verse 33, he rides on a mule. And you may ask yourself, why is that? Well, the reason why in the Bible, nobody rides a horse till they're king. That's why on Palm Sunday, when Christ went into Jerusalem, he went on the foal of an ass. 
And that's why in Revelation chapter 19, when he comes back, he rides on a horse. Because in the Bible, no man till he's king can ride a horse. He has to ride a mule because a horse is connected with a king. And it's those little things that you find in the Bible that, that, that go all the way through the Bible and shows you the Bible's consistency. Now in chapter 3, in chapter 4, and chapter 5, we have three great chapters that really display the wisdom of Solomon. And I must say, man, there is some stuff for us to learn here. Now I know that most of you, I'm talking to the men now and the ladies, but the men in particular as the leader of your home, uh, you know, a potential uh, a preacher at some point in your life, somebody that maybe God will use in the ministry at some point. Uh, I, I'm telling you this. The picture of Solomon and how he gets to where he is with the wisdom that he has is an incredible study. And uh, in chapter 3, verse 9, it talks about Solomon asking God for what he wants. In fact, God comes down and he says, what do I need to give you, Solomon? Paraphrasing. What do I need to give you to be the king? And when you study his request, it's one of the most incredible things. I've, I've, I've heard preachers preach this all of my life, and I don't think I've ever heard anybody preach it right. Because of the fact, I mean, they preached it right from their own standpoint, but they didn't take it down far enough. Let me show you what I mean. I've heard men say, well, you know what? Solomon was a great man because he didn't ask for riches. He was a great man because he put aside the power. He was a great man because he put aside, he didn't ask for fame. And you're right, he didn't. I've heard men say that he asked for wisdom. I've heard men say that he asked for God to give him wisdom. Hey, you know what? When I hear a man say that, I know I'm listening to somebody who doesn't understand the book of Proverbs. He didn't ask for wisdom. He didn't ask for wisdom. You know what he asked for? He asked for what wisdom, the next step of wisdom, he asked for understanding. He didn't ask for wisdom. Remember I taught you that thing before? I taught you how that facts or the accumulation of truth. That law of thermodynamics is facts. The law of gravity is facts. There's facts in this life that we can amass that are true. And when you take those facts and you put them into your life, when a doctor goes to, uh, uh, when a doctor goes to medical college or a lawyer goes to law school or a mechanic goes to mechanic school or you go to electronic school, what they teach you are facts, things that this will work. Positive and negative are two separate things. You can't put them together. As hard as you want to, you can't. There are certain things that are facts that you can't dispute. When you spend the time to learn those things, you learn the process of law, you learn the process of medicine, you learn the process of electronics, you come out with a degree. The degree means you have wisdom now. You're able to take the facts and use them in a way that you can use what you have learned. You now have wisdom. Any unsaved man or woman on this planet can have knowledge and they can have wisdom. That's why you'll find unsaved men, the older they get in life, if they've led a decent life and they have tried to do what's right, you can find actually some wisdom in what they say. But what an unsaved man or woman cannot have is understanding. Because facts, knowledge may be facts, wisdom may be facts applied, but understanding is seeing it from God's perspective. 
I mean, I've told you before, and I used it as an illustration, and I use it again just because it works so well. You know what? You like somebody that studies history, they see World War I, and they see the, the Archduke of Ferdinand being assassinated, you know, by the, and, and the breakdown of the Austrian Empire, and they look at all that, and they see how that Russia then had an alliance with so-and-so, and they come down and moved against this, and then when they moved, this guy had to move, and bang, we have World War I. You know, after World War I, we have the Versailles Treaty, you know, and, and you can look at that, and anybody can go back and study history, see the Depression in Germany, see the thing that was going on, see America didn't enforce the Versailles Treaty. They allowed Hitler to rearm. Bang! World War II. Now, you can go and be a military historian, and you can go to college anywhere and study military history or any kind of history, just like you can study medicine or law. And they will teach you the facts about the Bilderbergs in 1914, the Russian-Hungarian uh, Russian Empire, Archduke Ferdinand and Isabella, his wife. They'll talk about the guy that killed him. They'll talk about how he got killed, all the ramifications politically that brought about. And they'll lay that whole thing out for you. Then they'll bring you in and they'll show you the time period between World War I and World War II. They'll show you the political climate, the political temperature. They'll show you how a man like Adolf Hitler can come up in a time like that. And they'll give you all the facts and all the wisdom and when they're all said and done, you've got barrels of facts. You have incredible wisdom, but you have no understanding. Understanding will always, listen to me, understanding will always. I like it when I say listen to me and you put your head up. You're the only one that did. No, I'm just kidding. Understanding will always simplify the first two. Because God doesn't complicate anything. God's plan is to make knowledge and wisdom understandably simple. So when they complex World War I, World War II with all the political science and all the political things and all the ramifications of the countries and the nations, when you come to the Bible and have understanding, here's what you see. You know the theme of the Bible is the nation of Israel, the Jew. You find that in Genesis chapter 15 and run through the Bible. Then you see how the whole thing goes. World War I got the land ready for the Jew. World War II got the Jew ready for the land. And in 1948, they became a nation. That is understanding versus facts and knowledge. Understanding is God being in it. What is God doing? Why is it this way? Showing you within the plan of God how God lays things out. And when Solomon asked from God what he wants, he didn't ask for wisdom. He didn't ask for knowledge. He asked for an understanding heart. Now, boy, I'm telling you what. In chapter 3, boy, we see the benefits of it. And I'm going to talk to some of you guys maybe as a future pastor. Talk to some of you dads as a, as a, as a husband, as a wife. Uh, not, not as a wife, but some of you wives as wives. <clears throat> Let me just talk to all of you and save myself a lot of embarrassment here. You know what you need to ask God for? Hey, let me tell you something. I know you want to learn the Bible, and that's commendable. But don't, I'm telling you something. And I'm telling you this, and you better get it. It ain't just about learning the Bible. It isn't about the 18 types. It isn't about the 21 types. It isn't about being able to lay out Daniel's 70th week. It isn't about the book of Revelation, the book of Proverbs, and be able to figure the whole thing out. There are a lot of people in this world today who know the Bible, but there's a different aspect of just knowing the Word of God, and that is knowing the author of the Word of God. And you have to have a balance of both. You, that Bible says that when Jesus come, Christ came, He come, came with grace and truth. And there's a lot of God's people today that have the truth, but they have no grace. And there's a lot of God's people that have grace, but they have no truth. You need to have both. 
Now, you need to have in your life the ability to have, if you ask God for anything in your Bible study, if you ask God for anything and you're being a husband or a wife or a father, you need to ask God to give you an understanding heart. That's what Solomon asked for. And when he got that, when he asked for that, Oh, it shows you the inside of what it takes. Because the Bible says in chapter 3 that the first thing that it did is that it, it began, he, he recognized who he really was. Here is a man that is a king. Here is a man that is not just a king, he is the greatest king the world has ever seen. Never in the history of planet earth has there been a man more wiser, with more understanding, and more knowledge of God, and a greater kingdom than Solomon. He'll put the next 10 presidents or the last 10 that we've had in America or the next 100 you can get around the world and you couldn't even compare them to each other. This man was incredible. He was the nation of Israel, was the greatest nation. And I know you don't get this in college. I know you don't get this in sector education. They wouldn't dare tell you this. But there was a time on this planet when every man, every woman, every child, every nation, every king on this planet knew that there was a God and a king in Israel. Now you see that from what follows in here. And yet the greatest king, the greatest monarch, the greatest man that ever lived that ran the greatest nation, when he came out to do his State of the Union address, simply says, you know what? I'm not a king, I'm just a child, and I don't know anything. I'm so stupid, I don't even know when to go in and go out. Can you imagine the President of the United States getting up and saying that, no matter who he may be? Can you imagine Bill Clinton saying that? Can you imagine Bush saying it? I'm telling you, I'm not political. I could care one way or another, because now they're sneaking people in churches that listen so if you're a visitor here this morning, I think you might be one of them. <laughs> I have no political ambitions. You go into the bowling polling booth, just cross all the names out and write Jesus in in big red letters and put your X by that one. But I'm telling you, can you imagine our president today coming out and admitting to people that he doesn't know what he's doing. You see, the whole basis of power and winning in America is that I'm never wrong. I know everything. And I'm better than the, I'm better than the Republicans or I'm better than the Democrats because I don't make any mistakes. Everybody, that's the position you got to take. Because in the world that we live in, that's what we look for. But the greatest model of the greatest president, the greatest king, the greatest monarch, who asked God for an understanding heart, the first thing God showed him was his own invulnerability. First thing God showed him was that he couldn't be a very good king. Because in verse 8, the next thing God shows him, and he says that I don't have any ability on my own. He says, I'm just like a little child. He sees himself as a servant, not a king. Now, we talk about that in our political. Every ad you see, I'm going to serve the people. I'm going to serve the people. And, and all that is political junk to get you to vote for them. And when they get in, everybody has their own agenda. Let me tell you something. If you don't have understanding as a politician and see this thing from God's standpoint, you're wasting your time and spinning your wheels. You're not going to do anything for this country that has anything to do with God. Because you've got to come to the point where you have understanding, and that's what we're lacking today. 
And in chapter 3, we see that he recognizes he's a child. He has no ability of his own. And then he says, I'm a servant, not a king. And chapter 3 shows his attitude toward people. He knows that the nation of Israel are God's people, not his. And he says, I'm going to take care of them as God would take care of them. Now let me tell you something. If you ever get in a place of leadership in ministry, if you ever become a pastor, that is something you better learn. You better realize that, not your, that your church or your ministry or whatever the case is not yours to lord over. They're God's. And you better take care of them just like God would. Same way with your children. Same way with your children. Everybody quotes the verse wrong back there in Psalms when it says they're a heritage to the Lord. They're not a heritage to the Lord. The Bible says they're a heritage of the Lord. God gave, he lent them to you. And your responsibility is to take care of them just like God would if he was doing it himself. Simple as that. And that's the way it is for, for, for Solomon. He says, these aren't my people, they're God's people. That's understanding. And when you understand that the people you're in charge of aren't really yours to lord over, then you will look somewhere else, i.e. the word of God, to find out how God wants you to take care of them. I'll tell you something else. He sees them as God's people. He not only sees them as God's people, he sees their potential as God's people, even in the midst of all their problems. Now that's a hard thing to do today. Because <clears throat> we set up our little square box of rules, and if, you're, if you don't keep them, you're not in. You want to be one of us, you've got to follow the rules and the whole nine yards. Hey, let me tell you something. The bottom line is, is looking at people from the ministry standpoint is seeing the potential in them even when they're not the way you'd like them to be. The Bible says in verse 10 of chapter 3 that the things that he asked for please God. The boy, in chapter 3, verse 16, we see the example of his two wisdoms, one of the greatest unbelievable stories. We don't have time to get into it this morning about the two harlots that come to him with the baby, one saying it's hers and the other one saying it's hers, and he takes out a sword and just cut the baby in half. Wow, what an incredible act of wisdom showing some incredible spiritual concepts and truth that reverberate all the way down into our lives today in the New Testament and dealing with people and their problems. In chapter 4 and 5, we find that his kingdom is worldwide. We see an example of it in, in, in Isaiah chapter 56, many places in the Bible, but in Isaiah chapter 56, verse 18, you find a picture of the millennial reign of Christ where all the nations on planet earth are coming into Jerusalem. And it is typified in chapter 10 by the Queen of Sheba coming in to see all that Solomon has. You can't get around it. Then in chapter 6 through chapter 8, <clears throat> we have another great story. And that is the story of the building of God's temple. Now let me explain to you, in the Old Testament... There was a, there was a, before they got into the land, before they began a monarchy, they had a tabernacle. And I want to clear this up because in young Christians there might be confusion about it. The tabernacle was the one that they put up and took down every time they moved while they were moving for 40 years throughout the wilderness. Once they got into the land, Solomon was given the charge to build a permanent place for that ark. Remember in the Old Testament, in the tabernacle mode, where they took it from place to place, the ark of the covenant was carried on staves and was put in there when they camped. But it wasn't permanent. Wherever they went, it went. Well, now when they get into the land in 1 Samuel, 2nd Samuel, 1 Kings, 2nd Kings, now when they get the monarchy, now when the kingdom of heaven is firmly established in the land that God promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, now we see a permanent fixture. And it's called the temple of God. That's the same temple 
that was built and destroyed in 70 A.D. when Herod came down. That's the same temple that they'll build any time now that the Antichrist will sit in when he shows himself to be God in the tribulation period. It's God's temple. But yet, what you've got here is the greatest material in all the world is showing you not only the literal building of the temple, but the Bible says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19, What know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost which is in you which you have of God? And what you find in here literally that actually happened historically is some of the greatest practical material in your life for you as a young man or a young lady building your temple for God. And let me just say, the detail is absolutely so extensive that I'm not just saying this. I know I am prone to exaggerate every once in a while, but I'm telling you the truth on this one. You could take our next hundred years, ten hours a day, and never get all the material together. So you better get on it. I'm telling you. It's incredible. The extensiveness of this material, of every detail. I've never read anybody in all of my life that was able to exhaust everything that was in there. It is so unbelievable. It is just un, uh, unprecedented where you can go in and you can see. But yet there are some great concepts that come to light that you can build on. And the first thing that comes out of there takes us back to chapter 3, verse 5. The first thing you see is when building this temple is that he starts with the right motive. He starts with the right attitude. He starts with the right prayer request. He starts with everything right coming to God. And then the, the second thing is, he ends right. Oh, in chapter 8, verse uh, 22, uh, down through there, you'll find his great prayer. Hey, there's four petitions in that prayer. Whoa. I'm telling you what. There's four petitions for your life. And in that prayer, we see one of those great analogies that we find that are found in the Word of God. I showed you last week when we studied the life of David, how that David's life starts out as a shepherd boy and he comes to a king. How that pictures your life and my life. Right now, when God saves us, we're, going to be, we're a shepherd boy. But there's coming a day when Christ comes back, we're going to reign with him and be a king. It's one of those kind of things. When, David, when Solomon starts his prayer, he starts up, standing up. He starts out by standing. But when he ends this prayer, he's on his knees. And I thought to myself, wow, what a great analogy of life. What a great concept that shows our attitude change from the time we get saved to the time Jesus comes. I'm telling you what, you may walk this life when you first get saved, but you don't walk totally by faith. Oh, you're saved and you're on your way to heaven, but let me understand this, dear friend. There is no way. There is no way on this earth that once you first get saved, you're going to operate by faith the way you need to. It's a process. You learn how to do it. You learn how to go through those things. But through the process of time, you realize that this walk with God isn't on your feet. This walk with God is on your knees. I'm telling you something. You go back to the book of Ephesians and you find the armor of God listed back there for your spiritual warfare and your spiritual protection. You'll find two parts of your body that have no armor. There's no armor on your back and there's no armor on your knees. Because this battle is fought on your knees and you're never in retreat as a soldier of God. Oh, the material is unbelievable. And then I find an interesting thing in here in chapter 6, verse 38. I find a little thing that says he's seven years in building this temple. And I want to say to you this, and I don't, I'm not getting dogmatic about this, but I want to tell you this. I know that the number seven in the Bible is God's perfect number. And I know that if you want to learn the Bible, there is a systematic way of learning it. That systematic way is built on the pattern of sevens. Because that's God's systematic theology built into his own Bible. Now, I don't know a lot of things about life. I know a few things, but I don't know much. I mean, I, I ain't kidding you. 
I, I, I'm not a very smart person when it comes to uh, dealing with everyday things. I mean, uh, you know, my car, my car breaks, man. I, I don't know what to do with it. I couldn't fix a car. My life depended on it. I've always stood in awe that a guy that can take a screwdriver, stick it down under the hood someplace and make it start when it wouldn't start. I'd give a $1,000 to know how to do that. I'll tell you what. I mean, a guy walks up there, you know, some little gal out there or some guy out there, you know, starting to start. It won't start. It won't start. Guy always says, I love when they say this. You got a screwdriver? Woo. Like, yeah. Let me have it. Walks over. I've watched him do this. Lift up the hood. You lift up the hood. I'm doing the screwdriver. <laughs> he sticks that sucker down there someplace and touches something, and that's, he says, all right, turn it over, and that car starts. I did some dumb things. I said, hey, where do you buy that screwdriver at? I need to get one of them. I'm impressed with that. My car stops. I need a hammer. I don't know a lot of things about things in life, but let me just tell you this. I do know how to train young men and young ladies in the Word of God. That's my gift. I'm, I don't know what else to say. If you think I'm bragging about it, I'm sorry. That's my gift. That's what God has called me to do my whole life. I don't know anything about it in life, but let me tell you something. I can take a young man or a young lady, and I'll tell you what, you give me the time and their undivided attention, and I'll give you back somebody that's got the understanding that Solomon had, because I know the process. And then about me knowing all the Bible, I don't need to know all the Bible. I just need to know the process. I'm telling you. You can study the Bible. Guys all around the world study the Bible every way they can. One of my favorite movies, now I'm going to screw the name up on this. It's that one with uh, uh, Tom, uh, hey, Top Gun, who? Tom Cruise. But the one he made about the race car, Days of Thunder. Oh. Now, I don't like it because, oh, I like the Rex. And I like the little lines, you know. Walk down the lane there and says, you hit me. No, I rubbed you and rubbing the racing, boy. You better get it straight. See, I love that kind of stuff. Because that's, that's man talk. I like that. I like that. That's like, got a screwdriver? I like that, man. I do. But you ever know how these things work? And this is no different. You always got the old guy. Robert Duvall played Harry, Harry, what's his name? Harry, I got a screwdriver. Well, whatever his name was. He knew everything about racing. Then you have the young guy. And the young guy... You know, he thinks he knows a lot about racing. But he doesn't know anything. So they put him in a car, and he's running there, and he's, he's getting kicked all over the racetrack, and he can't win any races, and he, he keeps burning his tires up. Oh, classic line. So finally, and it always does, it comes to a point. The guy gets him down, and he says, look, what is, and I love this line, what does it take to win a race? You got to finish. We can't finish. Why can't we finish? Because this guy keeps burning the tires off. And then this kid understands how to get behind the wheel. He understands how to put the thing down and shift it. But what he doesn't understand is the mechanics of making sure you finish the race. Oh, I love it. I find myself in that situation so many times over the years. You know what Harold Harry says? He says, now look. Tires win races. When you were driving them sprint cars, your tires were that big and your cars weighed 
nothing. Now, your tires are that big and your cars weigh three times more than your sprint car. Tires win races. Got a screwdriver? I'll show you. Then he says the best line in the whole thing. You give me 40 laps any way you want to run, and then you give me 40 laps my way, and I'll beat you every time. I look at that and I think to myself, wow. I don't know about race cars. I don't know nothing about NASCAR. I don't know anything about it, but I know this. You want to learn that book? You run 40 laps your way, and then you run 40 laps my way, and I'll beat you every time. You know why? I know how to put that book into your life. I tell you what, I know how that thing works. I know how it comes together. It isn't because I'm so smart. It isn't because I, I, got, I, just, I figured out the formula. I figured out the formula. And the formula is basic and it's simple. And if you want to learn it, you give me a young man or a young lady and give me seven years. Now, I'm not saying it takes the magical number when you wake up and it's the seventh year of the month that you're going to... No, I'm just saying, in the pro, it takes about seven years to get that book down. But you give me a man or a woman who will give me their undivided attention and follow the program and let it run the race my way. And I'll give you at the end of seven years somebody that understands the Word of God and understands it like Solomon does. That is no reflection on me. It's a reflection on that book. It's God's way, not Bob's way. Bob was just stupid enough to believe somebody that said one time, it's the book. It's the book. And I'm telling you, chapter 6, 7, and 8, we see the building of God's temple. In chapter 9, oh, turn over to chapter 9. After he builds the temple, he gets a warning. After you learn the word of God, remember I told you last week, oh, that I may know him, the power of his resurrection, fellowship with suffering, being made conformable unto his death. We talked about balance. I talked about how everybody wants the first two. Oh, they want to be saved and know the power of his resurrection. They want to know him. They want to know the Bible. But they don't want the fellowship of his suffering and being made conformable unto his death. And then lies that unbalanced, my friend, lies the problem that you're going to fall into, whether you're a man or you're a woman, when it comes to that book. Because in chapter 9, after he builds the temple, after he asks for all the right things, here comes the warning, 9-1. And it came to pass... <coughs> When Solomon had finished the building of the house of the Lord and the king's house and all that Solomon's desire was, he was pleased to do, that the Lord appeared unto Solomon the second time as he appeared unto him in Gibeon. And the Lord said unto him, I have heard thy prayer and thy supplication, and thou hast made before me. I have hallowed this house which we has built, and put my name uh, for there forever. Oh, man, can we spend the rest of the month in here? And mine eyes and my heart shall be there perpetually. You get that? Once you get saved, he's there perpetually. And his eyes and his heart is inside you. Oh, can't preach. I've got to get going here. Ooh. Anybody got a screwdriver? Ugh. And if thou wilt walk before me as David thy father walked, in integrity of heart, and an uprightness to do according all that I have commanded thee, and will keep my statutes and my judgments, then I will establish the throne of thy kingdom upon Israel forever. As I promised to David thy father, saying, There shall not fall thee a man upon the throne of Israel, but if ye shall at all turn. Oh, those buts. That conditional. But, verse 6, if ye shall at all turn from following me, ye or your children, and will not keep my commandments 
and my statutes, which I have set before you, but go and serve other gods and worship them. Then will I cut off Israel out of the land which I have given them, and this house which I have hallowed for my name. Then will I cast out of my sight, and Israel shall be a proverb and a byword among all people. And at this house, which is high, everyone that passes by it shall be astonished and shall hiss. And they shall say, Why hath the Lord done this unto this land and to this house? And they, shall, and they shall answer because they forsook the Lord their God who brought them from their fathers out of the land of Egypt and have taken hold upon other gods and have had worshipped them and served them. Therefore hath the Lord brought upon them all this evil. And in chapter 10, in spite of that great warning, we find the great pivotal chapter. The great chapter that changes the whole course of the nation of Israel. And in chapter 10, where up to now we have studied by association, now we're going to enter into that other way I taught you, contrast. And oh, what a contrast. Chapter 10, verse 1 starts out, verse 1 through 13, with the Queen of Sheba coming to worship and see all of the things that Solomon has and worship God. And oh, I'm telling you. But boy, when you come to verse 14, it makes such a contrast. It makes such a change that you just have to have a, you'd have to be a Greek or Hebrew scholar to miss it, man, I'm telling you. I mean, verse 14 is probably the blackest verse in the Bible when it comes to the nation of Israel. Because at this point, look what it says. And the Lord stirred up the adversary. Well, I'm in the wrong chapter here. 14. Now the weight of gold. Up to this point, it's all been about Solomon and being good. Now look at verse 14. Paragraph mark. Now the weight of the gold that came to Solomon in one year was six hundred, three score, and six talents of gold. Six, six, six. Three times in your Bible you find six, six, six. Three times in your Bible. You find it in 1 Kings 10, 14 here. You find it in Ezra chapter 2, verse 15 there. And you find it in Revelation chapter 13, verse 18 there. Three times you find it. And just in case you were slow, look at verse 16. Six. Look at verse 19. Six. Look at verse 20. Six. You can't miss it. Then he says the gold that came to Solomon. You go back to Revelation chapter 18 verses 12 and 13 and you'll find the 28 priorities of the Antichrist. Oh yeah. You'll find the 28 priorities of the Antichrist. Chapter 18 of the book of Revelation is Babylon, mystery religion, the mother of harlots. And you'll find the whole thing laid out for you from beginning to end. And you'll find the 28 priorities of the devil and the Antichrist. Guess what the first one is in verse 12? Gold. Guess what number 28 is in verse 13? Souls of men. First thing he's interested in is gold. The last thing he cares about is your soul or mine. And as I said, Solomon's the only man in the Bible that is both types. Over the years, I guess there have been more questions asked to me about this than any other question in the Bible. That's because people think that's out of context. And they'll ask the question, why? Why? Now let me show you how this thing works. Solomon starts out well. Just so you understand the context. He starts out well. He goes into apostasy. But at the end of his life, he comes back to God. And that's when he writes Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and the Song of Solomon. And what God allows him to do is he doesn't allow any other man to do anywhere in the Bible. He allows him to taste, touch, handle everything in life. And at the end of his life, 
he writes a book about it and comes to the proper conclusion because he has understanding. That's the inspirational side. That's the historical side. But oh, from the doctrinal standpoint, he teaches us, as I said earlier, one of the greatest truths that we'll never learn. And that truth is that the devil is the greatest imitator of Christ the world has ever seen. There's not one Greek or Hebrew scholar from 1800 to 2004 that ever saw it that I ever read. You couldn't find ten preachers in this city that understand what I'm about to talk about. In any city in this, in this country of two million or more, you probably couldn't find five Christians that understand it. There's not one Bible college or not seminary in the world that teaches what I'm about to give you. They all miss it. And they all miss it because the devil wants them to miss it. Because that's how the devil operates. He operates in our ignorance and our stupidity. And let me say again, and I'll say it a lot. I have said a lot, and I'll continue to say it a lot. God is not going to hold you accountable to the judgment seat of Christ or what you know or what you didn't know. He's going to hold you accountable to what you couldn't find out, but you were too lazy to investigate to see or too busy or whatever your excuse is this morning. The devil's the greatest imitator of Christ the world has ever seen. Let me tell you something. Put it in context for you. If the devil walked in that door right there right now and come around here and stood on this side and Christ came in that other door and walked around and sat on this side, you couldn't tell them apart. I know you think you could, but you can't. You say, well, I know the nail scar. Man, the devil's got nail scars in his hand. Don't you know about those statues down in Central America and South America bleed every Easter? What's the matter with you? Well, I know because he's got horns and a tail and a pitchfork. You've been reading Mad Magazine, man. That ain't the devil in the Bible. Why, if the devil showed up and stood over here and Christ stood over here, you couldn't tell them apart except one way. One way you could tell them apart. I mean, if they both come in that back door and one stood on the right side, one stood on the left side, you couldn't tell them apart other than one way. And everything you think is the way is not the way. Let me tell you something. Two greatest chapters in that Old Testament on the devil and his work found in Job chapter 40, Job chapter 41. Job chapter 41 verse 13 says, Who can discover the face of his garment? Nobody. Hardly ever. Job chapter 41 verse 12 says, I want, God says, it says, who shall discover the face of his garment? And then God says, I will not conceal his parts, his power, nor his comely proportion. God will reveal him. That's why the only book that reveals him and the only book that teaches you how to know when it's God and when it's not is that book in your hand. And that's why in all the new versions of the Bible, every cross-reference that a Satan has been taken out or, or changed or altered and destroyed, that you couldn't trace him through there if your life depended on it. Hey, it's 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 14 says, And no marvel, for Satan himself is transformed as an angel of light. Hey, it's 2 Corinthians eleven fourteen 14 that says, And no marvel that Satan himself is transformed as an angel of light. Therefore, it is no great thing of his ministers. He's got ministers. And you think there aren't churches this morning? I promise you they are. You think they aren't talking about all the kind of nice things out of the Bible? You think they're opening up a Satan Bible? I promise you they're not. He's got ministers that transform, that are transformed as the ministers of righteousness. He imitates him in every form and fashion throughout the Word of God. Solomon is the greatest, most inclusive study to show you how close he is to the real thing, but he'll send you straight to hell. Revelation chapter 6, you got a white horse rider. Revelation chapter 19, you got a white horse rider. One of them's Christ, one of them's the devil. The one in Revelation chapter 19 is Christ, the one in Revelation chapter 6, the devil. Every Bible college in the face of this planet teaches the white horse rider. Revelation chapter 6 is Christ. Every commentary you ever got your hands on, except a few, 
We're going to tell you the white horse rider in Revelation chapter 6 is the Lord Jesus Christ. Right, right. Revelation chapter 19, verse 16, Christ is called king. Job chapter 41, verse 34, the devil is called king. Revelation chapter 21, the Christ has a city that's a bride. Revelation chapter 17, the devil's got a city that's a bride. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, Christ is called the prince. John chapter 14, verse 30, the devil is called the prince. John chapter, uh, John chapter 20, verse 28, Jesus Christ is called God. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4, the devil is called God. Hey, John chapter 8, verse 12, Christ is called the light. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 14, we just saw it, he's called light. Revelation chapter 5, verse 5, talks about Christ as the lion of the tribe of Judah. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8, talks about the devil, your adversary, going about as a roaring lion. Uh, we've already talked about, found it in 1 John chapter 5, verse 7. The greatest verse in the Bible tells you there's a trinity. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. In spite of the fact that every new translation takes it out or puts a footnote in telling you that that verse shouldn't be in there. That's okay. Leave it. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. When we come to Revelation chapter 13, we find it on the Holy Trinity. The beast, the prophet, and the image. All lines up. All lines up. The devil is the greatest imitator of the Lord Jesus Christ the world has ever seen. That's why Solomon was put in your Bible to show you a number of things, inspirationally, a number of things historically, but doctrinally, that you would never forget that the devil and Christ are so close. And when the devil operates, he operates in the sphere of religion. He operates with a Bible. He operates with a smile, a warm handshake. He operates with everything and imitates Christianity, except when he says, yea, hath God said, he changes what God said. And that's still not the way you know the difference. But I'll let you figure that out on your own. Chapter 11. After the pivotal chapter of chapter 10 with all that information, and we just scratched the surface. Chapter 11. Solomon's heart turned from God. Chapter 11, verse 1 says that Solomon, but King Solomon loved many strange women. And yet, if you go back to Proverbs chapter 2, verse 16, Proverbs chapter 5, Proverbs chapter 7, verse 11, you'll find he writes about those strange women and tells exactly how to stay away from them because he learned his lesson. He goes out through other gods in verse 4. And in chapter 12 and chapter 13 of chapter 11, God says, I'm going to take the kingdom from you. I'm not going to make a full end of it, but I'm going to take it from you. And you know what happens in chapter 12 and chapter 13? The kingdom gets split. Jeroboam and Rehoboam and all the Boam boys. Jeroboam was a mighty man of valor. Solomon trusted him and put him in charge. And it backfired on him and he took the, he took the northern kingdoms, ten tribes, called Israel. Rehoboam was his own son. And after the split, Rehoboam, Solomon's sons, gets the two southern tribes called Judah. Now from this point on, the nation of Israel is not going to be one nation anymore. You need to know this. This is why you're going to find now reference to Israel and references to Judah. This is why from this point on you're going to find two lines of king. Judah has a line. Israel has a line. Israel is the name of the ten northern tribes. Judah is the name of the two southern tribes. So don't get confused. Not a big deal. And we begin to see at this point from chapter 14 to chapter 22... The end and the destruction of the greatest nation the world has ever seen because they backed out of the Word of God and did not heed the warning that God gave them after somebody taught them the Word of God. In chapter uh, 14, Rehoboam dies. And Abijam takes over. 
another bad king. And with Abijam, we get a new word introduced into our vocabulary that hasn't been around before, hadn't been on planet Earth, but now it is. Sodomites. Sodomites. Sodomites connected with Sodom and Gomorrah. Sodomites made such an impact on the world that even today, in our own legal system, as far as away it is from God, they still carry the charge of sodomy. From the sodomites, your friends. From the, from the, from the, the most wicked concept, and along with the sodomites came the same-sex marriages, came the indulgences of all kinds of stuff. And I'm telling you what, you talk about the nation of Israel going down the tubes. It went down, and that's why America's going down. Chapter 15, Asa. Oh, I love this. Let me show you God's sense of humor. In 2 Chronicles, uh, chapter, uh, in this chapter 15 here, it talks about Asa. Now, Asa is an example. He's a, he starts out a good man, winds up a bad man, like so many of God's people. He starts out going to church, starts out loving the Bible, starts out coming to here, coming to there, doing everything, and then suddenly something becomes more important. Suddenly things take priorities over the things of God. And suddenly he begins to go on. Now watch this. What a great character. In fact, all these kings are such great character studies, but we don't have time to get into it. But you get more information on 2 Chronicles chapter 16, verse 11. Because the Bible says that Asa who starts out being a good king, winds up being a bad king. Here's what happens. The Bible says in 2 Chronicles 16 that he gets a disease in his feet. Now that's a picture of your walk with God. He started out right, but for whatever reason, for whatever outside influence, for whatever began to happen, he began to, his walk with God began to suffer. Priorities began to take over all of the things of God. And he began to have, the Bible says he began to get diseased in his feet. His walk with God began to be affected with disease. The Bible says that it gets continually worse. The Bible says that instead of going to God, instead of going to God, instead of, let's say it again, instead of going to God, he goes to the physicians. Instead of taking his problem to the church, to the God, to the pastor, he went to his Christian therapist. He went to his Christian psychologist. And the Bible says that he dies. He starts out good. He gets a disease in his feet. He won't go to God with it. He won't take it to God. He trusts in the physicians of the world more than he trusts in the power of Almighty God. And he dies, oh, God have a sense of humor, in 2 Chronicles 16, 11. I'm telling you what, you want a, you want a prescription that'll fit any problem you got? 16, 11. You want to go to the physician of this world? You go ahead. And you'll wind up dead spiritually. In chapter 16, we have four, it's, it's falling apart. We have four kings in less than a year. Nagag, Eli, Zimrah, Omrah. Nagag's a wicked king. He murders to get the throne. Eli comes to the throne. He's murdered by the next guy, Zimrah, who only reigns seven days, and he's killed by Omrah. 
And Omri is a wicked king, man. And he produces the wickedest king Israel has ever had or ever will have. King Ahab. Oh, Ahab. Oh, and I'm telling you. Chapter 17, 18, 19, 20. Well, really, to the end of the book. Well, let's just take that section right now. We got a picture of Ahab and Jezebel. Oh, what a story we have here. You see, Ahab represents Satan. Jezebel represents the religious system by which Satan operates. Ahab will be, will be the devil. Jezebel will be the religious system by which the devil operates and gets control of things. She's the manipulator. She's the one that pulls it all together. In fact, when you go over to church history in Revelation chapter 3, verse 20, in the church of Thyatira, which begins to start the Dark Ages, when the church begins to go into total corruption, there's a warning given, and it says to that church, I mean 3,000 years after this all took place, it, or 2,000 years, it says, I suffer, thou sufferest that woman Jezebel to seduce my servants and, and force, or teach them to eat things sacrificed to idols. She shows up in the church age. She represents religion. Ahab represents the devil. And lo and behold, in this story, 17, 18, 19, and 20, I don't have time to go into it. That's a good Thursday night Bible study question. I can show you every aspect of the tribulation period where the Antichrist run the world through his religious system. And you know who the prophet is during this time? Elijah, Revelation chapter 11. He's one of the two witnesses right in the middle of it all. I mean, it's incredible. Watch this. Chapter 21. Here's an easy one. In chapter 21, you have the story of Naboth. And his vineyard. Whoa, watch this. Now here's the story. Ahab wants the vineyard that Naboth has. And he asked us, and Naboth won't give it to him. So Ahab back around there, and he's down the mouth in the palace, and he's walking around, won't eat his supper, and just down in the dumps and depressed. And Jezebel comes bouncing in, and she says, What aileth thee, king? He says, Oh, he says, I want that vineyard down there. Naboth won't give it to me. And I'm just, you know, I want it. She said, I'll get it for you. You think that's just a story? Watch. Watch. Oh, yeah, watch. Oh, watch. Are you watching? You don't look like you're watching. Are you gelling? I love these. This is what makes the Bible work for me. You give me one of these, I couldn't get higher on drugs than I get from something like this. I've never tried drugs, but let's do that some night, Jimmy, and we'll know. <laughs> Ahab. Picture the devil. Wants the vineyard. Jerusalem that belonged to Naboth type of Christ Ahab gets it the devil by a plan of Jezebel his religious system who kills Naboth Christ and delivers it to Ahab chapter 21 is a picture of the devil and his religious system called Babylon, Mystery Religion, the Mother of Harvest, Revelation chapter 7 and 18, at work down through history for one purpose, and that is to take the vineyard that rightly belongs to Naboth, Christ, and give it to the Satan, Ahab, where it doesn't belong. Oh, 
chapter 22. Ahab killed in battle. That battle's a picture of the second coming of Christ. And his son Azariah takes over. From this comes the expression that we all use today, like father, like son. Azariah is just as bad as he is. And though I, we all enjoy Ahab getting his due in chapter 22, and I don't know that that made that rhyme, but I guess it was just my time. <laughs> and I guess I should teach rap because I know where it's at. And I'm done because my wife's looking at me like she's getting her gun. <laughs> I can't help it. You know what? I'm in trauma today. I am. This is part of my problem. I had to put my dogs in the kennel yesterday. I know. I, I just walked around. I've been like Ahab, bumping into things, you know. Uh, it was the saddest day of my life. I, I mean, I know some of you think this is stupid, but that's okay. I mean... I mean, you know what? And you know what was even worse? I took him down. You're going to cry, aren't you? I know. Can I have a Kleenex? I'm going to need one, too. I, this is going to really make you cry. I take, him, I take him down there. The black one, you know, she'll get in anybody's car. She runs right in a pen. The yellow one, she's just she's checking things out, trying to see who she can bark at. Buddy. Oh. I say, come on, buddy. Come on. Come on. Come on. He won't go. Finally, he turns around. He sits down. And he reaches up and he grabs his, my leg with his two paws and he looks up. I tried to let, have them stay with them, me stay there and not go to Ohio and just stay with the dogs in the pen for the next week, but they wouldn't do it. So I'm suffering today. So if I'm a little giddy, cut me some slack. Anyway, chapter 22. Ahab gets it. He gets killed. But there's more in this chapter than that. Oh, you know, there's places in the Bible. I, I don't have one favorite verse in the Bible. I have favorite verses about different things for me in the Bible. I have a favorite verse that I gave you that's our verse. Remember that? I have a favorite verse that's my verse for, for my ministry. I have a favorite verse for me for my Bible. So, but... Years ago, I read this story, and I saw this. And this is the greatest verse of my life for my ministry. In fact, it's so much. This is my preaching Bible here. I got probably 100 sermons in here. And on the front of my preaching Bible, years ago, and this thing's got some scuffs and scars on We've been in some battles together. I put that verse. Can't hardly see it anymore, but that verse is right on the front of my Bible. Because I, that thing hit me so hard and impressed me so hard that the last thing, wherever I was, whoever I was preaching for, wherever I was at, I wanted to see that verse as the last thing that I saw before I went up to preach because I never wanted to be tempered to compromise on what I believe the Bible teaches. And to me, this, what I'm about to give you, this story and this verse is the greatest story in the, in the Bible for me as far as preaching. I, I don't know. I don't know of anything in this world that shows me my... I can't speak for you. But I don't know of anything in this world, in the Bible, that shows me my stand where I'm at today with this book and what I'm up against and what we face than this story and this verse. Now, second chap, uh, chapter 22 is a great chapter because here's what happens. 22, 5 through 25, king of Judah, Jehoshaphat. He comes down to the king of Israel, Ahab. I love it. Now, Ahab is a total waste. 
Ahab is a yes man. Ahab is wicked, and he has put together 400 prophets of Baal. And these prophets of Baal are telling him and advising. Remember now, the prophet in the Old Testament was one of the ways that God spoke to the king. Well, Ahab wants nothing to do with God, so he's fabricated not one priest. He's fabricated 400 priests who are dedicated to Baal who tell him what he wants to hear. Now, Jehoshaphat's a pretty good guy. He's not totally corrupt, but he's definitely hanging out with the wrong crowd. And in this story, is one of the most amazing stories for me. And I hope when I'm done with it, it'll be for you. Because you need to build your ministry on something. So, chapter 22, verse 5, Jehoshaphat comes down. And he meets with Ahab. And they're getting ready to go to battle. And Jehoshaphat says to King Ahab, we need to ask the prophets if we should go into this battle or not, because when you did that, the prophets, based on what God would give them, would tell you, yeah, go up. No, don't go up. Yeah, it's a sure thing. I'm going to whack them. Go ahead and go. Or no, stay back, because it isn't time. So that's the way they operated. Well, Ahab, way out of touch, he's got 400 guys who tell him what he wants to hear. He gets his 400 prophets together and he says, Tell me of God, O holy and spiritual. Tell me of the Lord. Should we go down to battle? And all 400 of them says, Go to battle, go to battle, go to battle, go to battle. Well, now there's one prophet who is God's prophet. His name is Micaiah. And Micaiah is my kind of guy. I don't know what he looked like. But I, I don't know how big he was, but I'll tell you what, a prophet's job in the Old Testament was rough. Because he brought God's message to the man of God who was the king and the people of God, the nation. And if they were in touch with God, you're a great guy. But if they're out of touch with God, it was a rough job. So God needed some rough guys to do the work. Oh, that's Micaiah. So Jehoshaphat knows about Ahab. And Jehoshaphat, I, don't, I can't read his mind, but probably he doesn't want to go into battle based on the intel that he's got from the 400 prophets of Baal because he knows, he, knows, he knows about Ahab and is out of whack with God. So Jehoshaphat says, okay, that's really good. But is there anybody else that we can ask of God? Classic line. Ahab says, yep, there's one more. His name is Micaiah. But I hate that guy. Really? Why? Because he doesn't prophesy anything good concerning me. Let me just pause for a moment and tell you something in life. In your ministry, in your life, in your service for God, there are some people who you want to hate you. There are some people who are so wicked and so far out of touch with God that them even saying that they're your friend is a detriment to your walk with God. And the greatest testimony that they can give you and bestow upon you and the greatest honor they could ever give you is to say, like Ahab said to Micaiah, I hate that guy! Thank you for that testimony, brother and sister. I take that as a compliment.
and old Micaiah. Oh, one time he's down there in verse 24 and Zedekiah comes up. And Zedekiah doesn't like what he said. The Bible says Zedekiah comes up and swacks him. And Zedekiah, with all of his puffed up, he says, oh, he says, which way went the Spirit of the Lord from me to speak to you? You know what he's saying? He's saying, who are you to tell me where God is? You know what old Micaiah says? He said, I'm going to paraphrase this. He says, who am I? He says, you'll know who I am when you're running for your life like the coward you are hiding in somebody's basement because you ain't got the guts God gave a dog. Rough. You know what my verse is? Oh, 1 Kings 22, 14. Front of my Bible. Here it is. My life verse in preaching. And Micaiah said, As the Lord liveth what the Lord saith to me, that will I speak. He said, you know what? I don't care who you all are. I know what a book is. I know who God is. And I know the message God's given me. And there ain't anybody going to freighten me down. There ain't anybody going to intimidate me. You can kill me or do whatever you want to do. The message God gives me is what I'm giving to you. And if you hate me, I appreciate that. Now that's it, folks. Oh, Micaiah. In the time of Israel's apostasy, in a time when things were falling apart, at the time when it was probably the toughest time to take a stand for God, for you and for me, here's an example, not much said about him. He's one little guy in a book of millions of characters that in the dark time of apostasy stands as a shining light for God's truth in the midst of everybody in the world. And let me just say this to you. If you come to the persuasion in your life, and maybe you're not there yet, if you ever come to the persuasion in your life that you're going to stand for that book that you hold in your hand that you believe, you are going to be hated. Don't take it personal. It isn't because of the person hating you really hates you. It's because the devil that is behind that person really hates you, and he hates you because of the book. That book will divide families. It'll divide everything in this planet because that's the way God designed it. When I got up this morning, my wife and I were getting ready to leave. We were getting in the car and I just happened to look down and I had one blue sock and one black sock. No, I know you're laughing at that like you have never done that. <laughs> and I went out there and I said, Honey, will you go get me a sock? No. I said, Honey, I'll be back. I got to. She says, You sure do. She says, I'm glad you saw that now. And I'll tell you what. I went back upstairs, went into the thing, and I'm telling you. And then I remembered a scientific thing that I studied years ago. And God had me do that because you needed to hear this today. I, I looked at that, and I, for a minute, I couldn't tell which one was black and which one was blue. Because inside the house, they both looked black. I got up, I went in the bathroom, turned on all the lights, and my wife got, you know those big floodlights they used in World War II to shoot down planes? We've got several of those to put makeup on. They were installed when our kids lived there, you know? I mean, you wanna, you wanna, when you want to cement the cracks, you want to get everything. You know what I'm saying? And I mean, they are a bright light. And I went in there and turned those lights on, and they still looked like they both were black. 
Now I'm in a dilemma because I have forgotten which one was black and which one was blue outside. So I'm looking around the corner and my wife is, is doing something down there, not looking up at me. And I step into the light and this one's the blue one. So I remember that because I just hopped this way so I wouldn't forget. And I went back in and I, I took it off. And then I had another dilemma because the one I got looked black. But they both looked black when I put the other two on. So I had to come back out again, hold it in the real sunlight. And then I saw that it was black and I put them on. And that's why I'm as fashionable as I am at this moment before you. Otherwise, you'd have been sitting out there saying, Hey, honey, his socks don't match. Appreciate you focusing on the truth that I'm preaching over my socks that I'm wearing. But that's okay. Anyway, point is this. And I learned this a long time ago. When colors are close, it's a scientific fact that man-made light will not discriminate the colors. Sunlight has something in it that man-made light doesn't have. That when things are so close in color, that man-made light will show them as the same when sunlight will show them as different. That book has a different light with it than man-made light. It will... Man, am I glad I wore two different color socks this morning. It'll show you what really is the color based on the man-made light that you look through when you think it's the same. Micaiah... He had the light of God, sunlight. And he saw things the way they were and preached them the way they were. Ahab, he had man-made light, 400 prophets of Baal, who showed him the colors were the same when they weren't. And I'm telling you, that book will separate you out from this world, but just like Ahab and Micaiah, they will hate you for it. That's okay. That book shows you what the true colors are of everything on this planet. And my friend, that is the book of First Kings. Let's pray. Father, we thank you and praise you for all you do for us. We love you. And Lord, help us to learn these books. Help us to put these books in perspective. Help us to learn the great truths as we go chapter by chapter. And Lord, there's no way. God, there is no way. <clears throat> there is no way I can teach all of this stuff. I, 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 it's not my intention. My intention is to Make these men and women so excited about this book that is so supernatural, the true light of God, that show the true colors. The Lord, we will never, never let anything else compete with it in our lives. Lord, I love these folks. Lord, I have so much fun with the people, the men and the women, that I teach one-on-one -on -one every week. And Lord, I, I just pray <coughs> that each man and woman in here, Father, will understand that, Father, if they're going to ever serve you. They're going to have to learn the book your way, not theirs. And Lord, I thank you. I thank you, Father, for this story. I thank you for showing me Solomon in his good and his bad. Like we talked about last week. Oh, Father, the contrast that it wouldn't be there if you didn't show us the bad things along with the good things. How I can glean from that in my own life. Oh, Father, thank you so much. Thank you for these people. And I pray, Father, you'll give them a good week. Be with us as we travel. Be with them as we're away, Lord. Be with Thursday night Bibles that let these young men cover the bases, Father, in all aspects. And Lord, I just so thankful, Lord, that, that I have men that know the Bible, women that know the Bible, and young men and young women that are fast on the track, Lord, of learning the Bible. And Lord, I just thank you for that so much. 
And I pray, Father, that you'll just continue to bless us in all that we do. We'll give you the honor and the glory and the praise. In Jesus' name, for sake we ask it. Amen. Well, praise the Lord. <clears throat> you know what's coming up in the next couple of weeks. You can plan your lives accordingly. And uh, God bless you. I love you. You're dismissed. And we'll uh, see you next Sunday when we get into the next book. And we'll start to put the end of this or the kings of Israel. God bless you. You're dismissed. <laughs>